This is the sixth class on this 10-week class in apologetics, and today is actually going to be the first of two weeks that we're going to do on the reliability of Scripture. And so we're going to be exploring why Christians believe that the Bible is true and reliable. Um, but before we jump into that, I actually want to take a couple minutes. Now that we've reached the midpoint of the class, um, and just kind of recap where we've been up to this point, and maybe look ahead to where we're hoping to go the rest of the way. Uh, so, <clears throat> for those of you that have been with us, you know that in the first four weeks, Chris did a great job of showing us that we have a rock-solid intellectual and rational foundation upon which to base our worldview and to believe that God actually exists. And he also showed us that in contrast to that, the worldview of the naturalistic atheist is basically a house of cards that under even the most basic scrutiny is just gonna collapse upon itself. Okay, and then last week, Kevin uh, talked to us about how this God in which we believe is all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he's good in every way, and yet evil exists. But he showed us that the fact that evil exists does nothing to undermine our, our belief in this God and in who he is. And so if you haven't listened to those, I would encourage you to get on the website and go and listen to those first five sessions that we've done because there's some really good uh, and really important stuff in those. Uh, and as I said, going forward, we're gonna spend the next two weeks here looking at why we believe the Bible's trustworthy. And then the following two weeks after that, we're gonna look at the historical reliability of the resurrection. Um, and then in the final week, we're gonna have a Q&A panel discussion on, with, with all three of us, myself, Chris, and Kevin, answering some of these questions that, you know, some of the more common questions that come up when you get into these discussions. Um, so that's where we've been, that's where we're hoping to go over the next few weeks. Um, but the question that some of you might have at this point is, well, what do we do with all of this? Okay, so we've been, admittedly, we've been tackling some pretty big philosophical questions on things like the existence of God and the problem of evil. Um, and so with those kind of topics, you can get into some pretty dense, sometimes pretty technical uh, pretty heavy philosophical things, uh, which, which could leave some of you thinking, okay, this is really good stuff, and I think I'm tracking with most of it, but how in the world am I supposed to use all this? You know, how can I, how can I work the teleological argument into my next conversation with my neighbor or something like that? Um, and to answer that, I'd actually like to circle back to something that Chris said in the very first class, which is that apologetics has never saved anybody, okay? So we wanna be really clear about that. Apologetics does not save anyone. The church's mission and your mission as a Christian is to make disciples. Okay, and apologetics in and of themselves can't do that. Only the gospel can do that. Okay, so when you got saved, you weren't saved because you sat down and uh, on a rational, uh, calculated basis, you explored all the different options, you evaluated the reasonableness of each, and you, you looked at the law of non-contradiction, and you said, okay, Christianity is the most rational, most reasonable choice Therefore, I choose to follow Christ. 
So that's, that's not how it happened. Uh, you heard the gospel message of, of Jesus Christ and the Spirit opened your eyes to see and to believe in Him as your Lord and Savior. And that everything that the Bible says about Him is true. So that's how you were saved. That's how I was saved. Um, and we know that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers uh, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, 2 Corinthians 4. Um, and it's the gospel, not apologetics, that is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, Romans 1. So, but apologetics are a tool to assist you in evangelism in the same way that something like hospitality might be, okay? And, and one of the ways that we hope that this class will equip you is by giving you confidence to engage the unbelieving world around you and to do that without fear or intimidation of thinking like, wow, like maybe they know something that I don't. Like maybe there's a, a, a silver bullet out there or, or an ace of spades as Kevin talked about last week. Uh, and so I'm gonna sound ignorant and I'm gonna sound dumb if I just, you know, start talking about Jesus who, you know, is the son of God and was uh, born in a manger and lived a perfect life and died a sacrificial death and then was raised again on the third day. We want you to have confidence to know that after you've heard a lot of the things that you've heard, that you can know that, wow, I really do have a sound intellectual, philosophical basis for everything that I believe. And that even the best attacks that the unbelieving world has on my worldview are weak at best. You know, they, they the, the smartest people in the world, the best thing they can come up with is uh, when, when asked, uh, where did the universe come from? The best thing they can come up with is well, from aliens or from an explosion or from, you know, crystals on the backs of crystals or something like that. Um, so you really can have the confidence to just go and share the gospel and yes, do apologetics as well. Um, so with that in mind, I like to give you some practical principles to consider when it comes to doing apologetics, okay? Um, so there's 10 of them, and like any good Baptist outline, they are alliterated, if you have the outline there, which is not easy to do with 10 points, um, but nonetheless, here they are, and I, I think these are helpful things to consider when it comes to doing apologetics. Number one, the authorization to take a stand for truth in a hostile world comes from God himself. Okay, we are commanded to defend the faith, contend for right doctrine, and share the gospel with the world. So 1 Peter 3.15 says, uh, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And so right there, that word defense is, is where we get the word apologetics. I mean, the, uh, God himself is commanding us to do apologetics, which is essentially to give a defense of what we believe. So that's number one. Number two, the aim of apologetics is to bring glory to God by pleading with sinners to repent and turn to him in worship and obedience. So even though the truth can always triumph over error in a debate, our ultimate goal is to win hearts and souls, not arguments. Okay? So, so the aim of our apologetics is not merely to convince atheists to become theists, but it's actually to fulfill the Great Commission to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Okay? Number three, 
So then, the answer that we point people to is Christ himself. We use apologetics as a means to get to the gospel message. So an apologetic that falls short of presenting the whole gospel leaves sinners in the same place, which is still lost. Number four, the authority for apologetics is the Word of God. And that's what we're going to be talking about in more detail today and next week. But it's important to note that information from general revelation, like history and science and reason and experience, those things can all be really helpful in providing secondary affirmation to the truth that's established only by God's special revelation. Okay? And because the Bible is God's word, it comes with his authority, and there is no authority greater than God himself. So our ultimate authority in apologetics is, is the Bible, um, which, which makes our discussion over the next couple of weeks that much more critical when we understand that. Um, number five, the agency that empowers our message is not us, but the Holy Spirit. So no amount of arguing that we might do with someone uh, is going to convince them to truly embrace Christ. Okay, in fact, nothing that we do can, can actually change anyone's heart. Only the Spirit, through the miracle of regeneration, can actually accomplish that. So yes, we present the message. Yes, we do so in a way that's clear and compelling. Um, but it's the Spirit that gives life where there was none. It gives sight where there was only darkness, um, light rather, where there was only darkness. And I remember hearing a story about a guy who was doing evangelism on, on a college campus, and he approached this college student and was, you know, trying to engage him in a gospel conversation, and this college student was skeptical, and he demanded that he get an explanation for why for how Jonah could have been swallowed by a giant fish and still survive. He was like, I, I don't want to hear anything you have to say until you can explain that to me. And the evangelist wisely said, well, yeah, we can talk about that later, but first, let me talk to you about Christ. Let me explain to you the gospel. And so he shared the gospel with this guy, and the guy was convicted and he repented of his sin and believed in Christ right there. And so, you know, after this whole process, the evangelist says to him, okay, so do you, do you still want to talk about Jonah? And the guy said, no, there's no need to do that. If, if that's what the Bible says, I believe it. Um, number six, the attitude that we must have uh, should not be arrogant or argumentative, but instead it should be one of confident humility. Confident humility. As we calmly but uncompromisingly present the truth. 2 Timothy 2, 24-26 says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Number seven, the audience may change the starting point of our message, but it doesn't change the heart of our message. Okay, so, so we talked about apologetics being a, a tool for evangelism. And this is one way that it can be really useful is helping you establish a starting point with somebody. So when you, when you understand other people's worldviews or other people's religions, it helps you to kind of get where they're coming from and know how to better bridge, you know, build that bridge from where they are to getting to the gospel message. Um, and we see Paul doing this. 
in Acts. If you, I mean, we don't have time to go through it, but just on your own time, if you're curious, look at how Paul deals with the pagan philosophers in Acts 17 on Mars Hill versus how he deals, how he does an apologetic to King Agrippa, who was already familiar with Jewish teaching and would have accepted that there's a, that there's a God in heaven. Um, very interesting to look at the contrast, kind of illustrates this point of how apologetics can be a really useful tool in helping us establish a starting point, even though hopefully we're always ending up at the same place. We wanna end up at the gospel, but apologetics can get us that helpful starting point. Number eight, the assumption that we start with is that human beings already know that God exists and they need him. Okay, Romans one, Chris talked about this a lot. Uh, It tells us that the knowledge of God is already written on every human heart, okay? And so knowing this, that we can be confident that whatever objection somebody has to the existence of God or to the Lordship of Christ are not ultimately an intellectual or a philosophical objection, it's a moral objection, right? Everything else, all all the other objections are just a smokescreen by which they're trying to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And so we can do apologetics and we can share the gospel with the assumption that they already have a knowledge of the existence of God written on their heart, okay? And as much as they're trying to suppress it, it is there. It's deep down there somewhere. Okay, number nine, the anticipation is that the message will be unpopular and that we will be rejected and despised by most. So in doing apologetics, we've got to be careful not to fall into the trap of desiring intellectual respectability at the expense of being faithful to Scripture. Okay, we need to, we need to embrace the fact that believing in the God of, of the Bible and in His Son, Jesus Christ, um, it, it's going to result in some level of rejection and, and even ridicule, probably at times. We just need to, we just need to expect that. And then finally, number 10, the assessment of our success comes from Christ himself. Okay, success is not determined by a number of supposed uh, converts, but rather it's to our faithfulness to proclaim that message accurately, okay? And I think it's always helpful to remember um, that in any area of life and ministry, including apologetics, um, success is, not def- is, is, is defined by faithfulness to Christ and his word, okay? So that's just a, kind of a midpoint recap, and here's some practical ways that you can make use of the information that you have heard up to this point and are going to hear. Um, and then there's one final uh, example here that I wanted to share with you as it relates to um, why it's valuable to think through these kinds of things. And it's this quote from Oliver Wendell Holmes. And it says this, for simplicity on this side of complexity, I wouldn't give a fig. But for simplicity on the other side of complexity, for that, I would give you everything I have. So what does that have to do with apologetics? Well, let me try to unpack this just a little bit. I'm going to make use of my whiteboard here. And I'm going to try to do this where everyone can see. Everybody see that? So, and I've... I've got uh, on the handout there, this looks slightly different. This is kind of a, a messy ball of yarn, but, but the point is the same. And basically it's this. Our goal is over here. 
Our goal is simplicity on the other side of complexity, okay? So our goal um, when we're communicating biblical truth to people is to be clear and to be simple. So the goal is not to be complex just for the sake of complexity, okay? That doesn't help anybody. So to enter into an argument with someone and start using terms that they've never heard before and ones that we don't really even understand ourselves, um, that's not that helpful. Nor is it our goal to be over here where it's simplicity on this side of complexity, which is really just simplistic or even ignorant. Because over here, we think everything is simple, but we haven't done the hard work of wrestling through all the complexities that are involved in this. To be able to come out on the other side of it and present a really clear and simple message to people. And so I think it, this is just kind of an illustration of how we would like this class to serve you guys, is to help you kind of move along further along this line of understanding where we're helping wrestle through some of the complex issues um, related to apologetics and related to big, big philosophical questions that are valuable questions that you need to think through and that you need to hear what the other worldviews think about our worldview and how they analyze the world around them. This is all really helpful, but the goal is to not stay in complexity. The goal is to come out on the other side of this complexity with a really simple and really clear and confident message. Does that make sense? Is that helpful? Okay. Okay. So we're going to grapple with the complexity of some of these weighty issues with the hope of coming out on the other side uh, with a stronger understanding and an ability to, to communicate even clearer and even simpler. Any questions on any of that? Okay. I guess my explanation was simple on the other side of complexity. Um, okay, so let's get into the reliability of Scripture. Having gotten the introduction and the recap out of the way. So, this is obviously a vitally important subject when it comes to giving a defense of our faith. Okay? Because for one thing, as we said earlier, the basis and authority for all apologetics is the Bible. Okay? So if the Bible isn't uh, reliable, then none of the truth claims that we make when we're doing apologetics are going to be reliable because they're all founded upon the truth that's established in Scripture. And not only that, but all the truths that we hold to about God and about Christ and about our salvation and about our eternity, all of those are based on the fact that we believe that what the Bible tells us about those things are true. So if the Bible can't be trusted, then our faith is futile and we are of all people most to be pitied. Okay? 1 Corinthians 15. And I love what Chris said uh, early on when he talked about how he responds to objections from his students. You got a lot of smart students that come to you with a lot of big questions. And you said, you know, I'm staking everything on this. And so I'd really love to hear what you're saying. I'd really love to understand what you're coming from. And that's exactly what we're doing. Like we're staking everything on this. We're staking everything on the fact that not only is the Bible God's word that is inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, but we're also staking everything on the fact that the English translation that we hold in our hand or on our phone or our tablet actually represents what was breathed out by God by the original human authors, right? So we have a lot riding on 
whether or not the Bible is trustworthy and reliable. And spoiler alert, it is reliable. And you can have full assurance that it's the Word of God, okay? And that's what we're going to be walking through for the rest of our time together today and next week. Um, But there's a quote. I don't know if I put it on the outline, but the quote is from a guy named Frederick Kenyon, who's a, a linguistic scholar. But he said this, The Christian can take the whole Bible in his hand and say without fear or hesitation that he holds in it the true word of God, faithfully handed down from generation to generation throughout the centuries. And that's what we want to help you think through the rest of this time together. And so the way that we're going to do that is we're going to be using this book, uh, as a framework. Okay, so this is a book by Greg Gilbert, and it's called Why Trust the Bible. And it's a really small white book, and it's in our bookstall when, Lord willing, our bookstall re- returns. Uh, although I think you can get on demand books from Terry uh, from the bookstall. So, but this is on the bookstall, um, and I would recommend it to all of you to read it if you want a really practical overview of this subject, okay? Because this topic, like many in apologetics, can be very scholarly, it can be very technical, um, but Gilbert covers the key issues in a really brief and a really accessible way, okay? And there's, there's a lot of different ways to approach this topic of the reliability of Scripture. But for our purposes, I think his is a good one, and I found it really helpful, and I hope that you will find it helpful also. So the approach is basically this. By looking at the Bible, not first and foremost as the Word of God, which we all believe that it is and know that it is, but for, the, for our purposes here, if we look at it first not as the Word of God, but simply as a collection of historical documents to see if they are reliable and trustworthy on the basis of history, okay? We're gonna start there. And the reason for that is a couple. One is, in order to be the Word of God, the Bible would, at a bare minimum, need to be historically accurate and reliable, right? We all agree that. And for another thing, more than any other religion, Christianity presents itself as history. Okay, Christianity is not just uh, a list of ethical teachings or mythical truths, but Christianity is a claim that something extraordinary that was concrete and real has happened in history, namely the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, so the logic then goes like this. If the Bible, specifically the New Testament, for, for these purposes, but these principles apply to the whole Bible, but if the New Testament is historically accurate, then the resurrection must have happened, okay? Because the New Testament tells us in detail about the account of the resurrection. So if the... New Testament is historically accurate, then the resurrection must have happened. And if Jesus actually rose from the dead on the third day, then he must really be the Son of God. And if Jesus is the Son of God, then everything that he said is true, including that the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, is the Word of God. Okay, so is everybody tracking with that? That's kind of the path that we're taking. Yes. Yes, I can. Absolutely. So, so this is kind of the, the logical uh, progression of how we're going to work through this. Okay, so if the New Testament is historically accurate, then the resurrection must have happened. Okay, the resurrection has to be true if the New Testament documents are historically accurate. And if the resurrection is true, if Jesus actually rose from the dead, then he must really be the son of God. 
Because there's no other explanation for how a man can say, I'm going to be raised again on the third day and then actually do that. So he's got to be the son of God. No other conclusion. And if he's the son of God, then everything that he said is true. And among the things that Jesus claimed was that the Old Testament and the New Testament were the word of God. Is that good? Got it? Okay. Um, okay. And so the way that we're going to walk through this then is by answering five big questions, which helpfully are also alliterated, um, this time with a T. And, and those big questions are going to begin with us as the modern day reader, and it's going to work backwards through the chain of events that took place back to the actual event that the biblical writer wrote about, okay? So stay with me. Think of it like this, okay? So if you're reading the Gospel of Matthew and Matthew's account of Jesus's feeding of the 5,000, okay? Well, along the way, for you to end up with the ESV in your hand reading that story, in the Gospel of Matthew, first, Jesus actually did that, right? The event actually happened. Matthew was there and witnessed it, and later he wrote down an account of what he witnessed. And then, after Matthew wrote it down, scribes took what Matthew wrote and they made copies of it. And they were intending to make exact copies of it that were faithful because they read this and saw it and were like, whoa, this has got to be transmitted throughout history because there's nothing more important than this story about this man. So they took it and they copied it. And then copies were made of that copy and copies were made of that copy and on down through the generations. And then after all those copies were made, there were uh, a committee of, of scholars who gathered those manuscripts together, they compared them, and then from that, they made a unified Greek text of the Gospel of Matthew, specifically for this example, for the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And then another group of scholars, translators, took that Greek text, and these were men who had studied Greek for decades and studied English for decades and got together as a committee and said, how can we most accurately take what Matthew wrote and put it into the English language where people at UBC in the year 2020 can read about the feeding of the 5,000 in the language that they can understand. So is everybody tracking with that so far? So it's that process, it's that chain of events that leads to these five questions that we're gonna ask. So starting from us and working backwards, the first question is this, can we be confident that the translation of the Bible from its original language into our language accurately reflects the original? Can we be confident of that? Question number one. Question number two. Can we be confident that scribes and copyists accurately transmitted the original writing to us or did they either intentionally or unintentionally, add, subtract, or change things in such a way that we no longer know what was originally written. So can we be confident that the copyist transmitted the original to us faithfully? Number three, can we be confident that we're looking at the right set of books? and that we haven't missed or lost a set of books out there that gives a different perspective on Jesus. 
That is, how can we be confident that we're looking at the right books when we're looking at these books instead of those books? Okay? Number four, can we be confident that the original authors were themselves trustworthy? That is, were they really intending to give us an accurate account of events, or did they have some other agenda to deceive us, to write a work of fiction? Were the original authors actually intending to give an accurate account of what they wrote? And number five, and lastly, if we're confident that the authors were trying to give an accurate account of what happened, can we be confident that what they described actually took place, or were they somehow misled or deceived to write down something that they thought was accurate but actually didn't happen? Okay? So those are our five questions. And hopefully, by the end of next week, we'll be able to confidently say, one, we have good translations of the biblical manuscripts. Two, those manuscripts are accurate copies of what was originally written. Three, the books we're looking at are the right and best books to be looking at. Number four, the authors of those documents really did intend to tell us accurately what happened. And finally, number five, there's no good reason to think that they were mistaken in what they saw and in what they recorded. Does all of that make sense? Anybody need clarification on any of that or have questions? Okay, so today we're going to look at questions one and two, okay, and then next week we're going to cover questions three through five. Okay, so question number one, can we trust our translation of the Bible? Can we trust it? I've got a quote there on the handout from a man named Kurt Eichenwald. He wrote this in Newsweek magazine. He said, no television preacher has ever read the Bible. Neither has any evangelical politician. Neither has the Pope. Neither have I, and neither have you. At best, we've all read a bad translation, a translation of translations of translations of hand-copied copies of copies of copies of copies, and on and on, hundreds of times. So this is a common criticism on the reliability of Scripture. And it's made up of two parts, translation and copies, translation and transmission, which are the two questions we're going to talk about today. But think about it. What would you say to this guy? If you were talking to him, how would you respond to that? How would you respond to him saying, yeah, you're, you're looking at a translation of translations of translations that's from copies of copies of copies of copies? Well, first of all, it's definitely not true that we're dealing with a translation of translations of translations, okay? It's not as though the original Greek first went into Spanish and then that went into Japanese, which went into Arabic before finally getting translated into English, okay? So just to be clear, we're able to translate directly from the original Greek and Hebrew into English <clears throat> and other languages. And so we're actually dealing with a translation period. Okay, so then how does this translation process work? And how can we be confident that what we're reading in our language accurately reflects what the author meant to say in his? Okay, so how does translation work? Well, there's a visual there on the outline. 
of, of uh, a, a Greek verse and a Hebrew verse. Does anybody know what those say? Chris, you know what those say. <laughs> the Hebrew is actually Psalm 119, I think, and the Greek is John 3.16. But the point is, that is what, that's what the translators start with, Okay? So translators of the Old Testament start with that top line, which actually reads right to left. Um, and translators of the New Testament start with the, the bottom line. Um, and also there's some Aramaic in the Old Testament, a little bit. Um, but basically, committees of linguistic scholars labor for years and even decades to develop a translation of the Bible, which is even more complex than it might seem. Translating from one language to another is not as simple as just looking at a word uh, in Greek or Hebrew and then saying, okay, what's the English word that matches up with this word? And then you just use that word every time that Greek word occurs or Hebrew word occurs. It's not that simple. Um, they spend decades studying vocabulary, studying grammar, studying syntax of both the language from which it's being translated and into the language of which it's being translated. So that requires um, a lifetime of study to take on that kind of a monumental task. Any translation project requires years of effort, first in understanding the meaning and structure of both languages, and then finding words and structures in the target language that accurately capture the meaning of the original. Okay, and this is not done by one or two people. Okay, this is dozens of scholars who are experts in their area of language who spend all of these years putting together one of these massive translation projects. The ESV, for instance, had over 100 scholars that worked on that translation. So it's an incredibly extensive and painstaking process. Uh, and the point that we're making here is the fact that we're using a translation is not a legitimate objection to the historical reliability of the Bible. Okay, these scholars have been studying Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, and English literally for centuries, and they are able to translate accurately and precisely between those four languages. Okay? Any questions on that? Okay, well, what about the fact that there are so many different translations? I mean, in English alone, we have many, many, many translations. Uh, we have the ESV, the CSB, the e NASB, the NIV, the KJV, the NKJV, uh, and the list goes on and on. And so does that mean then, because there's different English translations, that they somehow disagree on the meaning of the text. And the reason that they keep coming out with different translations is because everybody's got a different way of seeing how the Bible should be translated. Well, the short answer is no, um, they don't. Uh, the different translations definitely don't keep us from knowing what the original meant, and in fact, reading two or three of these translations side by side can a lot of times give you a fuller picture of what's actually happening, of what's actually in the original language. You can get kind of a more nuanced view by seeing how some of these different translators approach it. And I, I think the differences in the translations to understand why those exist and, and why they're different in the ways that they are is that different translations have different purposes, okay? 
So to one degree or another, they all are trying to aim for accuracy and readability. Okay, that's kind of the two, the two poles upon which they're trying to strike that right balance. And depending on what their purpose is, they're gonna be somewhere on this scale between accuracy and readability. They all wanna be both, but it's just the degree to which how readable do you wanna be? Well, you're gonna have to sacrifice some accuracy. And if you wanna be super literal, then you're probably gonna have to sacrifice some readability. Okay, some of these translations attempt to be a more word for word translation or a literal translation, while others are kind of doing it on a thought for thought basis. And this is what's called dynamic equivalent. So, and, and again, all of the translations, all the major ones, they're doing this the same thing to one degree or another. And in different passages, you might find that the NIV might be slightly more literal than the ESV in a given passage. Um, but overall, the NIV is probably gonna be more lean toward the readability side of the scale but yet still trying to be accurate and vice versa. Um, so depending on where a translation is on that scale is gonna determine how they're gonna render a word or a phrase. Um, now it is true that there are certain words and phrases that are difficult to translate. And, and in those cases, different translators do sometimes have significant disagreements about how to render that word or that phrase. Um, but in those cases, it's important to keep in mind a couple of things. One, that only happens a very, very, very small percentage of the time, okay? There's, uh, there's only a handful of instances of that where the major translations have a significant disagreement on how to translate something. It is only a handful of times in the entire Bible, okay? Uh, the second thing to know about that that's important is where those instances happen, they are never of any doctrinal significance, any major doctrinal significance, okay? And so when those, dis when those disagreements are there or when a translation has, a, has difficulty translating something, they're usually gonna indicate that by a footnote. So it's right there, it's transparent, um, none of these translators are trying to hide what they're doing. None of them have an agenda uh, of trying to impose some different theology. Um, they couldn't get away with that if they tried in this day and age. Um, so, so everything is there. No one's trying to slip anything through, okay, without telling us. That's the point. Um, So, so the point of, of saying all this about translations is that nothing in our modern Bible translations gives us any doubt, not even the slightest bit of doubt, about whether or not we can really know that the Bible, um, that, that we know what the Bible said in its original languages, okay? In fact, we do know what it says. And in the places where some scholars do disagree, um, those are few and far between, and those are of minor theological or doctrinal significance. Okay, so the Bible can be and has been translated correctly, accurately, faithfully, over and over and over. Any questions there? Any thoughts? Yes. Yes. They do, and, and so, so what we're, what we're going to talk about in the next section will kind of speak to that, because what the, what the ESV translators are doing is they are taking one Greek text, okay? And from that Greek text, they are trying to 
faithfully and accurately as possible translate that into English. The work of compiling that Greek text from which they work off of is the work of textual critics. Or that, that's a different set of scholars who take the manuscripts, they compare those, they contrast them, they're working tirelessly to try to find, based on all the manuscript evidence that we have, what did the original ac actually say? And they're putting that in the one Greek text, it's called the critical text, that the ESV uses. And to answer your question, yes, they go back as far as they possibly can, and we'll get into some of that in our next section here about just the manuscript evidence that we have and how far back it goes. Sound good? Okay. Any other questions? Okay, so does everybody feel good about the translation that you have? Does anybody have any concerns that we can sort out here today? Okay, good. So we feel confident about our translation. So then question number two, and the last one that we're going to cover today is... Um, Boy, it really is going to be the last one we're going to cover today. We're running low on time. Can we trust the transmission of the text? The transmission. Okay, so this is another objection that we see on the reliability of, of Scripture is that, okay, even if we're able to translate it accurately, there's no way that we can be confident that what they're translating is even the right thing. You know, how do we know that what the ESV committee was translating was even what Paul wrote. We don't know that because that was copies of copies of copies. You remember the quote that we read earlier. And so as we consider this question, I think right off the bat, it's important to acknowledge kind of the elephant in the room, which is we don't have the original autographs of the biblical authors, okay? Okay. None of those have survived. None of those are in existence. Okay? So then how can we um, be sure that even though we don't have those original pieces of paper, if you will, how can we be sure that the pieces of paper that we do have reflect those original ones? Um, well, even though we don't have the originals, for the New Testament, we have over 5,000 other pieces of paper, if you will, papyrus, parchment, um, that contain copies of the original Greek. Okay? And these go back to the third and even second century. Okay? Second century being the 100s. And there was, a couple of years ago, interestingly enough, a fragment that they found of the Gospel of Mark that they thought initially could possibly be first century. Like within the, first, the, first, within the same century that the New Testament was actually written, which would have been monumental. At this point, they have said, no, that's a second century document. But nevertheless... Going back to the third or even the second century, um, that's, getting, that's getting way back there. Um, some of these manuscripts contain whole books of the Bible. Other ones have been partially destroyed. Some of them are just literally fragments where we can only see pieces of a few verses. Um, and there's a, the, the photo that I have up there for you is of a, a manuscript fragment that we have called P52. And that is actually the oldest known uh, manuscript fragment of the New Testament. And it dates back to around 125 AD is what they think. Um, so two primary cr criticisms of the manuscripts that we have are this. One, they're so far removed from the originals that they can't possibly be reliable. It's just like a game of telephone. 
you know, where one person whispers something in somebody's ear and then they whisper it in another person's ear and on down the line. And when you get to the end, it's not even recognizable to what the original message was. That's the criticism. And two, they're so riddled with errors and contradictions that there's no way that we can know what the originals actually said. This is what skeptics and critics will say. But as we're gonna see, the copies that we have are really not that far removed from the originals as they might seem, okay? And as for the variations in the manuscripts, what we're gonna see is it's precisely all those variations from the thousands of copies that allows us to reconstruct with a very high degree of confidence what the original actually said, okay? So let's address those two, those two criticisms. First, are the copies too far removed from the originals? Okay, so the New Testament originals were written in the mid to late first century, okay, between 50 and 100 AD. And the earliest copies of manuscripts of, that we have are around AD 125, 150, 200. Um, so that means we've got a gap of like 45 to 75 years, somewhere in there from the original autographs to the earliest copies that we have. Um, and as you said, skeptics will criticize this and they'll, they'll, they'll use that as a reason to say that it's not reliable. And even to us, we might think, wow, 75 years is kind of a long time. I mean, you know, if I wrote something down and gave it to my kids and said, hey, make sure that this stays preserved for the next 75 years, I don't know that I have a lot of confidence that that would end up happening. Um, but there's a couple of things that we should know that will give us, I think, some good perspective on this. First of all, books in general were much more valuable to ancient people than they are to us today, and therefore they took much better care of them, okay? Because that was all they had. They didn't have smartphones. Um, they didn't have tablets. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have anything. They had books. That was what they had. That was it. And if you were a Christian, whatever piece of God's word you had was the most valuable possession you had on earth, okay? So, so they took uh, very meticulous care of these books. Um, so scholars have looked at old libraries and seen that people really regularly used books for up to 150 years before they would make a new copy and discard the old one. Okay, so, so if books back then were kept in use for literally hundreds of years, then a gap of 45 to 75 between the originals and the earliest manuscripts is really not that long. In fact, Gilbert points this out, and I think it's fascinating to think about, it's very plausible to think that we have copies of the originals, okay? So we have manuscripts that quite possibly, we can't know for sure, but quite possibly could have been a copy of what John wrote. Um, we have those in museums. Uh, and that's pretty amazing to think about, especially when you consider the gap that exists between the originals and the earliest copies of other works of ancient literature, okay? And you can see really quickly just how small the gap for the New Testament is because many of the famous works of ancient literature have maybe nine, 10 surviving copies, surviving manuscripts at all, the earliest of which are 800 to 1,000 years after the original. So when you compare that to 5,000 plus Greek manuscripts that we have that are maybe less than 50 years from the original, and that's just the Greek manuscripts that we have, by the way. If you compare all the manuscripts that we have of other languages, Latin and, 
and then all the quotes of the early church fathers. I mean, it's something like 25, 30,000 manuscripts that we have of the New Testament. It, it completely dwarfs any other ancient work. Okay, so to the first objection, we would say, no, that's not a legitimate objection. The New Testament is much more well-attested through manuscript evidence, and it's not even close than any other work of ancient literature. Lastly, are there too many variations in the text for us to trust it or for it to be reliable? <clears throat> so, you know, that's the other thing they say. It's so riddled with differences and variances that it's hopeless to think that we can ever have confidence about what the original said. <clears throat> and some critics have said that the variants could be as many as 400,000. Okay? 400,000. Like, that's kind of scary when you see that just on its face to think uh, of all the New Testament manuscripts, they disagree in 400,000 places. Like, how reliable could it be? So how would you respond to that? Think about how you would respond to that. Because um, that's kind of jarring. And while that may be true, technically speaking, this could be close to true, but the way in which it's counted is really, really misleading, okay? So first of all, it's not just counting the variants in the 5,000 plus Greek text. It's also counting them in all those other ones that I talked about. So totaling like 25,000 manuscripts, okay? So with 400,000 differences among 25,000 manuscripts, that leaves you with really only 16 on average, 16 differences per manuscript. Well, now that doesn't look too bad. 16 per manuscript differences. That's not nearly as scary as this. And it gets even less scary when you think about the fact that a variant, a textual variant, doesn't necessarily mean that it's a whole different reading. Okay? It could be the difference in just one word or even one letter. And if, if one manuscript has it it has a word spelled one way and then 10 others copy it a different way, well, then you've got 11 variants right there, right off the bat. So when you think about it that way, then it actually becomes pretty amazing that the scribes and copyists did such an amazing job keeping it as pure and as accurate as they did over all that time. I mean, Think about how many errors we make in a day, and we have computers with spell check, we have good lighting, um, we have a lot of things available to us that they didn't have, and yet they're still able to, on the whole, have very few variations. Um, and among those variations, uh, they tend to cluster around the same kinds of issues. So it's not like all of these are just spread all over the New Testament, everywhere. And it's just errors and contradictions everywhere you look. This is actually, all of these variations are kind of a composite of, of a handful of different variations that kind of pop up, okay? So, um, so it's really the actual places in the New Testament where there's any differences is actually pretty small. Okay, so the, the point is when you get beyond like kind of the, the shocking headline, what you see is not this mountain of copies with, uh, with so many different variants that you just can't make heads or tails of it. It's not even close. You get a remarkably stable trans transmission throughout history for the vast majority of the New Testament. And only in a few isolated places 
is there any significant doubt to what the original author actually wrote. So the scribes did a, did a really remarkable job in transmitting the text and God ultimately uh, showed his power and his providence and his faithfulness to supernaturally preserve his word as well as he did throughout that time. Um, you know, we are, we are running really low on time. So I'll tell you what, because there's, there's another kind of section of this that I want to get to, but we will pick that back up next week. And does anybody have one maybe final question or something that can be clarified before I close this out? Yes. Yes, I, 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 there are good examples and I will bring one of those and show you next week. Does that sound good? Okay, I will have an illustration for that. Anything else? Yes, no. In many cases, that was true, yes. Particularly the Jewish scribes. Um, sometimes what we see in New Testament copies is that there were some errors that were made and sometimes even deliberate errors were made that we see where they were trying to do things like they were trying to smooth out something or make it kind of agree with something in another. You know, if they were copying Mark and Mark said it a different way than Matthew, and he kind of liked the way Matthew said it a little bit better. He might, he might kind of transpose that onto it. So, um, so they were very good and they were very faithful, but they were not perfect. Okay. Um, we will finish the rest of this up next week. Thank you for listening. Let me uh, close this in prayer. <clears throat> Father, we are so grateful uh, that we do have a Bible that we can trust and know that it is your word and that it has all things pertaining to life and godliness um, and that it teaches us who you are and who we are and how we can be right with you. Uh, and we just praise you for your providence that we see um, even in the preservation of your text and in the translation of it. Um, into a language that we can understand. And uh, we just pray that you would help us as a body to think well about these things, that you would just fill us with confidence um, that would lead to worship as, as we just reflect on how you preserved uh, your word and how you've revealed yourself to us. We love you so much and thank you and praise you in Jesus' name, amen.